So, are you a good neighbor? I'm talking about the people that you live near, like on your block, in your neighborhood. Are you a good neighbor? And maybe the follow-up question to that would be, like, how would you even know if you are? Like, is there a test you can take? Or like, what, what does it mean to be a good neighbor? Do we even have any concept of what it means to be a neighbor anymore anyway? Our, our culture used to be into that kind of thing. It sounds kind of quaint and old. It, it, it kind of reminds me of like, you know, I don't know, the Andy Griffith show or something, where people were like, neighborly. That was a word that we used in, in our culture. You're, oh, you're being neighborly. Um, it, it, was, it was in pop culture a little more. I, if you remember... Um, Years ago, the, the State Farm commercial, and like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Remember that? Yeah, come on. I used to sing jingles in my previous career. Uh, no. So do you, do you remember, remember that? Like, what does that mean exactly? Like, we all knew it. It was like, oh, yeah, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But bad neighbors are there, too, with their yappy little dogs. Like, so I don't know that being there necessarily means something, but we, we all kind of got it. Yeah, be a good neighbor. And if you're a Gen Xer like me, then you grew up with uh, a show that would come on where we were kids and we watch, and this like older dude would come into the room. He would start the show. His name was Mr. Rogers. Remember this guy? And he'd, he'd walk in at the start of the show, and he'd be looking at the camera, and he's singing. And I don't know why he couldn't get dressed before he got there, but he always would get there. And the first thing he'd do is take off his shoes, and you're watching him take off his shoes. And then he'd put on this little cardigan. And the whole time while he's doing it, he's singing this song about, Won't You Be, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And, um, you know, there was a less cynical time, you know, back then. An old dude singing to you to be his neighbor was not creepy at all like it would be today. And, uh, and that was cool. Like, uh, okay, well, I'm going to be his neighbor. And, and, and he'd be, hello, neighbor. And, and then we would kind of go into his little world and stuff. And that was kind of a, a, a cool thing. But somewhere along the way, we've lost a sense of what it means to be a neighbor. We have more connection and more opportunities for connection, certainly with social media and Facebook and Twitter. And, and you can email people, you can text them, you can call them. You don't have to be talking on a phone that's attached to the wall like we did in the old days. You can talk to people and connect with them at all times. You can Instagram people. You can Snapchat and send people a picture of you with Mickey Mouse ears on. And there's all sorts of things that you can do to connect with other people. And there's all sorts of technology and, and entertainment and options and just great things out there that you can take advantage of. And yet, my conviction is we are more disconnected than we have uh, ever been. We have Facebook friends, but not exactly real friends. We live near people, but we're not exactly neighbors to, to them. We started this series last week called Get Out There, and the idea is to take Jesus' command very seriously that we're supposed to get out there and spread the good news about Him. And whenever you consider doing that or speaking up about your faith or sharing your faith or anything like that, we get very uncomfortable and we get nervous. So last week we talked about the great things that God will do when we're willing to be uncomfortable. We talked about lack of comfort and comfort, and, and we talked about risk and those kind of ideas. Um, and this week, I want to make it very practical. If Jesus calls us to get out there and go and to share our faith, what are the contexts in which we can do that? And, and I want to start very, very simply with the context of your immediate neighbors in your, in your neighborhood. If you remember, I read this last week, the call from Jesus is this, Matthew chapter 28. Jesus says this before he leaves earth. He says, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
So Jesus says, I need you to go, to get out there, to share your faith, to, to I came here to talk to you, now I want you to go out there and tell everyone about me. And people have been doing that for the last two millennia, sharing the faith of Christ with their neighbors, with their friends all over the world and sending out missionaries and, and all of that and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I want to start today and, and just talk about the context of your immediate neighbors, of, of how we might speak up with our neighbors or how we even get to know our neighbors. Jesus had an important conversation uh, in the scriptures with a, with a guy who was a lawyer. Now, when we think of lawyer, we think of trials, courtrooms, you know, the law and order TV shows, that kind of thing. Um, in Jesus' day, when it says he spoke with a lawyer, it's not a civil government lawyer like Roman courtroom kind of thing. It is a religious lawyer. In other words, someone who, who specialized in the religious law of the day. We don't have a lot of context for religious law. Think of something like Sharia law in Islam now. But Jesus spoke with a religious lawyer of his day who specialized in all the intricate details of the law, of the Old Testament laws. And so this is the kind of person who's splitting hairs and trying to figure out, like, should we eat bacon or not? Or um, when you have a Sabbath day, which is supposed to be a rest day, how, many, how far can you walk on your rest day before it's considered work and you're not allowed to do it? So can you walk half a mile or whatever? Like, these little intricate details... That's what a lawyer was in that day, someone who specialized in that religious law. Lawyers today also get into intricate details. That's why when you get a contract or something, you like, you're like with all the legalese in it, you're like, I will gladly pay a lawyer $500 an hour to read this so I don't have to read it. Like, can, can we just get someone to read this? This is awful, you know? And so lawyers today can really dig into the little details. And this guy, um, a lawyer, comes up to Jesus and he wants to dig into the details about what it means to get into eternal life and, and to know God and, and, to, and, and loving your neighbor and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I want to read it to you. It's in the book of Luke. The writer Luke wrote this down for us so that we would have it in Luke chapter 10. We'll start with verse 25. It says this, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said, that, and he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Luke tells us a little bit about the motives of the guy who's asking the question. The lawyer's asking the question, and it says he wants to put Jesus to the test. This is a pretty typical thing for rabbis like Jesus, famous sort of traveling teachers of that day. People would go up to them and say, all right, what do you believe about this? What do you think about this law? What do you think about this interpretation? So he's trying to test Jesus, like, all right, what, what, what do you think about these ideas? And the question the lawyer brings to him is, what, must I, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Or, and, and that isn't probably a question you've asked recently. But I think the bigger narrative, the bigger idea behind that question is a question that we do ask. It's basically the big question of like, what is good? What is the meaning of goodness? What, uh, how can I be good? How do I get right with God? What is the purpose in life? Where am I headed? What, what, is, what happens after I die? Those are the kind of questions that maybe swirl around in the back of our minds. And they were a little more forefront in that culture. So this guy basically brings that question. What is the main thing? What's the heart of, of the law? What is life all about? And Jesus, as he so often does, he responds to the guy's question with a question. He says, what is written in the law? What do you think about it? Now, there are 611 laws in the Old Testament. 
Of those, the Pharisees and, and the other teachers of the law would make laws on top of the laws. So you had the base 611, then you had laws about those laws. And it got very complicated. And, and if we're going to boil all of that down, Jesus says, man, boil all that down. What do you think is the most important? What do you need to be doing to inherit eternal life, to be right with God? And the guy answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's one half of it is that I think of all the laws that are out there, here's the heart of it. You love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. That is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's a, it's a section of the Old Testament called the Shema, and it would have been read in the synagogues every week. And so the Jews view that scripture, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. They view that verse as like core, central to their faith. God is one, and we should love him you know, completely. Like it's a very important, powerful scripture. So that guy rightly identifies that scripture as being the heart of the thing, what it means to know God and to be in a relationship with you, you love him. And then he adds in, and you should love your neighbor as as yourself. Um, and that isn't in Deuteronomy 6. That actually comes from Leviticus 19, which we'll get to in a second. And, and Jesus acknowledges, okay, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, then you are, you're doing right. You've boiled it down. You're, you're getting at the heart of things. You, you, you're going to inherit eternal life. Now, we know what love God means. We've talked about that. We talk about that a lot. Love your neighbor as yourself is a phrase that we kind of make it as if it's the golden rule, which isn't exactly what it's saying. And a lot of times we read love your neighbor as yourself, and we focus on the as yourself part. And I've done this before as I've read it. I've thought, okay, love your neighbor as yourself. What that means is I should love myself. Because if I love myself, then I can love my neighbor well. Or, you know, you can't love your neighbor unless you love yourself first. And I can go down a very Oprah Winfrey road with that, with that idea about this. Love your name. You just need to take care of yourself and you just need to love you. I mean, here's Jesus and here's the heart of the thing, outward focus, love God, love other people. And we can still make that about ourselves. Well, I should probably love myself first, then I can love other people. That's not what this is saying. This isn't saying if you just do a lot of good self-care, you're going to be really good at loving your neighbor. To understand what it's saying, you need to go back to the context in Leviticus 19. Leviticus is one of the least read books of the Bible because it's just a bunch of laws. And if you're a lawyer, you might find that interesting. For a lot of people, not so interesting. But if you read the laws, you get a sense, not just of the legal details, but you get a sense of the heart of the thing. What does God care about? And in Leviticus 19, he's laying out all these things of how the Israelites are supposed to be a holy people and separate and different from their neighbors. In Leviticus 19:17, it says this, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against who? Against the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So you read that and you go, all right, mostly this is just saying like amongst your own people, be nice to them, kind your kin, your clan, your tribe, your people, make sure that you're good to them and, and, and don't have any problems with them. But this is a whole, whole section in Leviticus 19 about loving your neighbor. And look at what it says towards the end in verse 33. It says this. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall, do him, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you, this is key, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. God says, how do you treat your, the, the stranger who sojourns? Read into that as you, as you see it. Refugee. Foreigner. 
other race, other culture, someone other than you, your next door neighbor. How do you treat these people who aren't your tribe, your clan, your people? How do you treat them? He says, you treat them like they're you. Why? Because you were a stranger at one point too. You were the foreigner. You were the exile. You were the outsider when you lived in Egypt. And I don't want you to ever forget what that was like. You need to treat people who are different than you as if they are your family. So when Jesus rightly comes along here with love your neighbor as yourself, it's not saying you should do a lot of self-care and love your neighbor the same way. It's saying love your neighbor as yourself because they are you. Your neighbor, the other person, doesn't matter what racial background they have, doesn't matter what cultural background they come from, what country they came from, who their people are, whether they're native Richmonders or some sort of outsider, doesn't matter if they're Yankees or whatever the heck we're still talking about in this country. Uh, it doesn't matter what social background they have, doesn't matter how much money they make, doesn't how much, matter how much education they make. They are you, according to scripture. The, those other people are your people. And so we're called to love them um, and, and, and step up and, and, and meet their needs and, and get to know them. And so practically, uh, what does it mean to love our neighbors? Well, to, meet, to love our neighbors, we need to first know our neighbors. That would be like the first step, right? And, and there's a lot of reasons we don't know our neighbors, and there's some things that happens when we don't know our neighbors very well. Number one, I think isolation um, in our culture, we get isolated from our neighbors. We keep our head down. We, we don't talk. We don't wave. We, we, I think in the suburbs, I don't know who invented the garage door opener, but, I, but it like, it's like killing community, right? Like Before, you used to at least have to get out of your car to open your garage, and you could say hi to a neighbor then. Now you just push a button, zip right in there, shut the door, and you never have to come out of your castle. And you don't, we don't know our neighbors. We become very isolated and disconnected from them. Even in the cities, uh, it almost seems like the larger the city, the, the higher the potential for loneliness somehow. We have a phenomenon in our country and in other places called crowded loneliness. Sure, there's plenty of people around, but you're isolated you're alone. You, you, you don't have uh, as many interactions. And so we, we develop an isolation uh, with our neighbors, and, and that can be a problem. The second thing that happens when we don't know our neighbors is we fear them. We develop an incredible uh, sense of, of fear because we fear what we don't know. If I don't know them, then I start to fear them and think they're crazy and they're bad and they do weird things over there in that house over there and, and, and that kind of thing. I, uh, Laura pointed me to a podcast a while back called Invisibilia. And they did, a, they did a, an episode a couple of years ago called Fearless. And it was really interesting. They had this social researcher who studied kids, who studied 86 kids in a small town in Vermont um, back in the mid-70s. And so he would follow them around, this researcher followed these kids around for two years, and that wasn't creepy at all. Um, and here's what he found. He found four-year-olds and six-year-olds playing together by themselves with no adults around in the woods two miles from their home. Just think about that for a second. Those of you who have kids, think about your four-year-old two miles away, you know, kind of all day, just playing with other kids. That was normal in the mid-70s, and he documents all of that. And that was just like a thing that they did. And they came home, I don't know, when the lights, street lights came on, you come home, whatever it was. And I grew up in some of that. Now he has gone back, the researcher went back to that same community and has interviewed those kids that are now parents, that are also their parents, they're you know, middle age or whatever. And he interviews them, and those kids who grew up you know, playing with other kids 
at age four, two miles from the home, they don't let their own children go but 50 feet from the house. And they're in a fenced-in yard at all times. What's that about? So they, they, ask, uh, they ask the people, hey, you grew up wandering all over the place. Why don't you let your kids wander all over the place? And across the line, people's answer is, oh, well, there's, it's not safe like when I was a kid. Like it's, there's weirdos out there and we need to be more careful with our children. But here's what's interesting about that. They've run the numbers, and like, statistically, that's just not true. There's no more or less crime than there was in the 70s in in this town when they did the research. Like, the world is actually, in this country, it's not a less safe place to be. We just think it is. We're just afraid. And so they trace down that in the podcast. Why are we afraid? Well, the constant barrage of media, social media, you know, this shooting happens over here, this thing happens here. It's too much for our brains to take in. What the the constant message we get is it's bad out there. Everything's scary. And we can't process it discriminately. We don't have time to sort through, is it actually bad here or whatever? So we just kind of have this low-lying anxiety, this general malaise, this general feeling of like, oh, it's scary out there. I better keep my kids in close. And so we give into the fear. We don't know our neighbors and we give into the fear. We go, oh man, it's crazy out there. There's some bad stuff. So we're isolated. We're afraid of our neighbors. And then finally, then we misunderstand them. There's misunderstanding. When you don't know people, you fill in the blanks and you write stories. So they let their grass grow and you're like, why won't they cut their grass? Don't they care about how our neighborhood looks? And it just looks like a mess over there. If you actually got to know that neighbor, maybe you would find out that he's taking care of his mother who's dying of cancer and he doesn't have time to cut the grass. He's like just beat up by the whole thing. And maybe if you knew that, you would offer to cut his grass for him in that moment. But because of the isolation, because of the fear, because of the misunderstanding, we don't, we don't, we just don't know our neighbors and, uh, and we're missing something there. So how well do you know your neighbors? Maybe we can just start there very practically. Jesus tells us to go into all the world. And you're like, man, I don't know if I want to go to all the world. You know, those places are far away. It's like Cambodia or Haiti or somewhere like that. Well, maybe to start going into all the world, we could just start going into our own neighborhood. Maybe we could step out onto the porch and look around and go, okay, who's here? And how can I get to know people? Um, We need to take this idea seriously because, look, there's a lot of things you can do with your life, and I can too, right? There's there's raising kids, and there's going to grad school, and there's getting that job, and there's getting this education, and making this money, and planning a vacation, and planning for retirement, and thinking about living here, and and doing all those things, and dating, and and marriage, and, and all of that stuff. There's so many things going on, and there's only time in life to be good at a couple of them, right? Like, you can't do everything awesome all the time. But here's the thing, if Jesus says, and we, and we who are followers of Jesus need to listen to this, if Jesus says the most important thing you can do with your life, with your years on earth is love God and love your neighbor as yourself, don't you think those two things should be high up on our list? Like you're only going to be good at a couple things. Why don't you be good at the thing that Jesus tells us to be good at? Loving our neighbor as ourself. But we're not going to love our neighbors well if we don't know our neighbors we need to take some steps to actually know our neighbors. So here's a test. You got a sheet when you came in. It's a, it's a half sheet. It says, who is my neighbor? Pull it out right now with a pen. I want to do an exercise with you. Got that paper uh, when you got it. it. It should have, it looks kind of like a tic-tac-toe board, but we've already spotted you the middle one. Uh, it, it's, a, it's, a little, it's your house, okay? 
The, the boxes around the outside are your neighbors. So just think of your context where your house is. Those are your neighbors that live around you. Here's a little test. Let's see how well you know your neighbors, okay? Uh, so what, you, what you're going to write down, and you're not going to finish this right now. You can finish this when you get home. I actually do want you to finish it when you get home if you can. Um, for, for number one in all of those boxes, write the name first and last of the people that live in those houses around yours. How many of them do you know? Oh, there's that guy. Well, I mean, like, give me a name for that guy that lives over there. What's her name that lives next to you? Okay, how many names do you know, first and last? And if there's kids or whatever, know that. All right. Second line, write down a piece of information about those neighbors that you can't tell just by looking across at their house. Like, oh, they planted a yellow, yellow bush. Uh, they drive a, a Dodge Stratus, whatever. Like, what else can you know about them? Oh, they work at Frontier Project, or oh, you know, she's a Capital One, or whatever. Like, there's something else that you might know, maybe from a conversation. And then line three, write something that would come out of a deeper conversation with them, like um, he really misses being near his family, or uh, her, her dad fought in World War II, or, or some other level of detail that's maybe another layer deep about your neighbors, Okay. Now, when you look at that, uh, my guess is, if you're anything like me, you're not doing so well at this little chart, <laughs> right? Um, in fact, it, it, I could spot you this. This would be easier. The, the, thing, the thing we actually know about our neighbors is the name of their Wi-Fi network. Uh, you probably know that. Maybe you can jot those down as well. That's about it, you know? So it's like, man... Who are these people? The statistics on this, because we're not the only people to do this. In fact, in the, the suburb of Denver, Arvada, they give a chart like this to everybody who moves in to encourage them to get to know their neighbors. And what they found is that in, when you ask a group like this, 10% of the people in the room can fill in all of line one. They can fill in the names of everyone around. 3% can get down to line two and fill in another layer of detail. And 1% of people could fill in all the way around on the third on the third one. So if you did pretty poorly on this quiz, uh, you're not alone. Um, so what does this mean? Jesus tells us to love our neighbors, which means the actual, literal neighbors. Like he could mean, he could mean love your coworker and love the person at the PTA and love the person at school and, and all of that. And maybe he does mean that. But at a minimum, he means the actual, literal people who live next to you. How are we going to love them, then, if we don't know who they are, if we have no idea? And how is that going to change? How are we going to know them if we don't break the ice? Are you going to sit and wait for them to come across the street? Because I'm guessing they're not, they're not coming. Like, someone's going to have to step out. I, I talked to Jack and Mary Fry here at Area 10 uh, about a week ago. Jack was telling me that uh, they had a block party in their neighborhood. He lives over in Bird Park. And I was like, how did you get that together? He goes, well, I just put, like, I made some flyers and put them, like, door to door. We also have, like, a neighborhood association newsletter, so we put it in there. And he said, we, you know, we, 39 houses, we had 42 people show up. It was really, it was awesome. It was a fun, a fun event. And I'm like, why did you organize that? And he goes, oh, I'm, I'm the block captain. I'm like, block captain? This is amazing. Is there, like, a block private and a block, block lieutenant? Like, how do you get to be block captain? This is cool. Like, why don't we all have block captains? Like, I just really appreciated the structure of the thing that someone was intentional, like, hey, we should know our neighbors. We're going to throw a party. What if you did that? What if you just said, hey, we're going to have some drinks. We're going to play cornhole. Nothing formal. Just go put 
you know, cheap flyers, whatever, on people's door and say, hey, let's get together next Friday night and so we can get to know each other. Just take that first step. Oh, I'm not an extrovert. I don't want to, whatever. Just put it out there because they want to know too. They, they would like to know their neighbors as well. Why don't you just lead out and, and, and give it a shot? Now, the idea of getting to know our neighbors that way kicks up some issues for us and we have reasons why we're not going to do it. We have reasons, you have resistance right now. Oh man, I'd love to, but here's my reasons why. And the lawyer in, in this story here in Luke 10, he also had his issues. And so look at what he says after Jesus says, good job. Verse 29, he says this, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? See, if he had shut up and not said anything, he would have been fine. Because Jesus is like, he's like, love your neighbor, love God, love people. Jesus is like, yep, you get it. And then the guy comes back with, yes, but who's my neighbor? And really what he's saying there is, Jesus, who counts? Who do I have to love this way? You want me to love my neighbors myself? Get technical with me as a lawyer, right? Who's in and who's out as my neighbor? Who, who counts? In other words, can I get out of this some way? Like, are there people I don't have to love? And so Jesus responds by telling the guy a story. Listen to what he says. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when, it came to the place, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. You have to understand there's pretty significant prejudice against Samaritans amongst the Jews of that day. Jerusalem uh, in southern Israel uh, is, is a Jewish, an Orthodox Jewish area. And in northern Israel, up around the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus is from, Nazareth and places like that, is also the Jews. In between is an area called Samaria. The Jews, when they would travel to Jerusalem from the north, they would actually intentionally walk around Samaria so they didn't have to be among those people. And those people are also Jews. They're just Jews that have intermarried with some of the other cultures uh, that are around. And so the, the purebred Jews would look at the Samaritans like half-breeds, right? Like, and, and they didn't like them. And so in this story, Jesus tells, hey, here's a guy who's sick. Guess who ignores him? A priest, a religious guy, a Levite, also like a priest and a religious guy. Who's the guy who actually has compassion and, is, and functions like a neighbor to that man? Well, it's a Samaritan. And so the lawyer hearing this He's going to think like, oh, this is really awkward. In fact, I think it's interesting how Jesus says to the lawyer, hey, which one, had, which one uh, was a neighbor in this situation? And the guy doesn't say the Samaritan. He can't even spit that out. He just says, uh, the one who had compassion on him. Like he doesn't even want to say it. It bugs him so much. And so here's Jesus with an opportunity. The guy says, who is my neighbor? Jesus could have just said, the person you live next to. But it's more than that. He, he definitely pushes it further than that. And, and he says, no, you just need to be neighborly. Reach out. 
and, and, and help people. So we have two major excuses why we don't love our neighbors. Um, uh, you have them, I have them. I think these are, I've seen stuff written about this, uh, and these seem to make sense. Number one reason, if I say to you, you should love your neighbors, you should work on that, that chart there and get to know people. Number one reason while you, why you will say right now that you can't do that, why you can't do what Jesus calls you to do is because of time. You'll say, I'm too busy for that. I barely have time for my coworkers, for people at school. Um, I, you know, I'm working out in the morning. I leave early for the morning in my routine. I get home late at night. I'm doing a lot of hours. We've got this thing going on at work. And I just don't have time to stop and get to know my neighbor and all of that kind of stuff. I don't have time. But listen, let's pretend this is 1990, okay? Let's back up. It's 1990. The cool thing is that if we were sitting in here, this room hasn't changed really. So it kind of looked like this. Um, here we are in 1990, and what if I said to you guys, in the future, here's a couple things that are coming. Let me just predict this for you. Instead of sending letters through the mail, you're going to be able to type letters, and people will, you'll be able to send them to other people's computers, and you'll get them back like quickly. It's crazy, right? Also, you're not going to have a phone on the wall. You're going to, everybody's going to carry a phone with them. You can type letters on that phone. You can send messages quickly back and forth to people. You can send pictures back and forth to people. In fact, for work, when you're at work, you don't have to fly somewhere to meet with someone. You can pull up a video chat and talk to someone anywhere in the world. You'll be able to video chat with someone. We're also going to have this thing in the future. Remember this 1990, I'm telling you. We're going to have this thing in the future where you can record all the TV shows you like. You don't have to mark out your calendar to watch it Tuesday night at 8 o'clock. You can just record it, and you can fast forward all the commercials and just cut those things out, and you can watch it whenever you want. Now, if I told you that was your future in 1990, partly what you would be thinking is, man, what am I going to do with all my free time? Like, this is amazing. I'm going to be able to get so much done. I'm going to have so much wide open, free schedule. I can just, I'm going to be playing golf all the time. Like, this is going to be amazing. And all of that technology could have brought us that future. But instead, what we've done is, filled up our lives and gotten busy in, in other ways. And the things that are supposed to be time savers um, just become one more thing that we sort of cram, cram in there. And we're multitaskers and we're unbalanced in our lives. And so we tell ourselves to justify how we burn through time and how we stay stressed and how we stay busy. We tell ourselves basically three lies. We say, number one, uh, this is going to settle down someday. Uh, I'm just in a busy period right now. It'll settle down. When? When will it settle down? When the kid comes? When multiple kids come? When you're worried about school? When, you, when grad school? Do you think at retirement? Do you think, it, when is the moment that it'll settle down for you? Because you were busy before, you're busy now, you're going to be busy later. The reality is it'll settle down, there's two ways it'll settle down. One, you will die, and then things will slow way down for you. Or two, it'll settle down when you decide that it will. When you get serious about I'm going to take charge of my time and my life, and I'm not just going to keep drifting on this sea of crazy. That's when it will settle down for you. So we don't have time because we think it's going to settle down someday, and we're kidding ourselves. Number two, we think um, once I get a little more, that will be enough, and it won't be. That's not how more works. Oh, if I just get a little more, that'll be enough for me. Just a little more paycheck, a little more, time, a little more uh, cl- just one more class, one more you know, exercise, one more thing. If I just get a little more, that's going to be enough. That's not how dopamine works. Dopamine gives you a rush of pleasure in the brain, and you get enough of it, 
and you're just going to keep wanting more and more to get the same level of high and to get the same satisfaction. You're going to be constantly driving forward. You're always going to need a bigger high. So if you don't decide enough is enough, more will never be enough. And then number three, um, you'll tell yourself, everybody lives like this. Everybody's going crazy. It's just busy. It's just the culture that we live in. And America in 2017 is just insane. And the reality is, no, not everybody lives this way. You're choosing to live this way. I, I see this with couples I counsel all the time or, when I, or single people or whatever. People talk to me and they're like so stressed out and so much is going on. And I just want to be like, look, no one is holding a gun to your head and making you run at that pace. This is something you're choosing to do to yourself. Why? Ask yourself the question, what am I so driven for? What is going on? Why do I keep pushing? Why am I leaning so hard into this thing? Oh, it'll slow down then. No, it won't. What's going on inside of you that you keep pushing forward? It is your choice to live that way. So you have to make time to love, to love friends, relatives, to love your neighbors. And the second reason why we don't want to do what Jesus says in loving our neighbors is we want to redefine what a neighbor is. And we just go, I don't need to love my neighbors. I can love my coworkers. Those will count as my neighbors. And sure, Jesus could mean that. He could. And maybe loving your neighbors, according to Jesus, is bigger than the people who literally live next to you. But doesn't it mean, at a minimum, the people who literally live next to you? Like, shouldn't that be a starting point? The lawyer, he wanted a loophole. He wanted a way out. He wanted to be able to say, these people don't count. And we do the same thing. I say, love your neighbors. And we go, yes, but my literal neighbors don't count. I will just love coworkers, kind of. I will just love someone at school a little bit. And that's not what Jesus is calling us to. We want to redefine what it means to love our neighbors. And when we do that, we sound like people who say to me, you know, Chris, I know we're supposed to worship at a church, but I don't need to worship at church. I can worship on Sundays at the golf course. And I'm like, no, you cannot. Like, I've played golf. That's not what you're doing there. And if you say Jesus' name on the golf course, it's not worship. I promise you that. That's not what's happening. Let's be honest about it. And, and, and quit pretending, lying to yourself, lying to me. People are dying for connection around us. People want to know their neighbors. They want to be in relationship there. And so what are we going to do about it? How are we going to reach out? I read a story recently of a woman in California named Wanda, and Wanda's 90 years old, and she had a neighbor named Marlene, and they didn't know each other. And so Wanda wanted to uh, build some connection, and she just took this, she didn't text, she didn't email, she was 90 years old, she hand wrote a note and stuck it on Marlene's door. And Marlene came home from work, and this is what the note said, would you consider to become my friend? I'm 90 years old, live alone. All my friends have passed away. I'm so lonesome and scared. Please, I pray for someone. Listen, there's a lot of Wandas around us. You look at that grid around your house, there's a lot of Wandas. They're not all 90, but there's a lot of people who are longing for connection. And so an action step for you is take that, take that little grid, that little chart that I gave you home today. And try to fill it out and put it up on your fridge and just use it as a, hey, I'm going to start to get to know these people who live around me. I know it doesn't feel awesome at first. A lot of people, they've jokingly called that chart, I gave you the chart of shame. 
<laughs> I don't think it has to be that way. I'm not trying to shame anybody. But let's just start there and go, okay, I want to get to know on another level some of the people that are around me and make a commitment to start doing something differently. Jesus calls us to go to the world and, and make disciples of all nations. And maybe you should go to Haiti or Cambodia or Vietnam or Turkey or Russia. But maybe a way to start in all of that is just go across the street. Get to know your neighbor. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Your neighbor, they're just like you. They may come from a different background, culture, whatever, but they're your people too. Let's start loving right there, close to home. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be better neighbors. This, even thinking about this, praying about this, writing this message was so convicting to me of where I've fallen short of living in a place for 10 years and, and not building enough relationship. And God, I pray that that changes, that, that I step out, that others of us will step out, that we'll invite friends, we'll get to know people, um, we'll, we'll build some relationships because these people the sojourners, the refugees, the, the, the friends, the people from different places, there are people. The others are us. And uh, help us to think that way and understand that, that the image of God is in everyone and that we need to love people well. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. All right, guys, let's stand.